Welcome to the Blazing Ember podcast, where we aim to amplify the voices of Latino professionals. We, Diana and Maria, founded this podcast to explore unspoken rules and all the ships, leadership, mentorship, sponsorship, and allyship with Latino leaders. We are here to ignite your path to success with valuable insights. Bienvenidos. So today we're talking with Ed Estrada, who has blazed trails as a partner and global chair of Reed Smith's financial industry group, board member of nonprofit organizations and adjunct professor at Cornell Tech. He is now a principal at Estrada Legal Consulting, where he provides business development insights with law firms and other organizations. He's going to share with us his experience as a lawyer and now as a business owner, and in both cases, how he creates long-lasting relationships with his clients and his colleagues. So thank you so much for joining us today, Ed. Just kind of to get us started, we'd love to hear more about you and how you ended up in the law to begin with. Well, it's great to talk to you today. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I often speak to law students and undergrad undergraduate students about, about going to law school and being a lawyer and, and working at law firms. And the question, like like you just asked, of like, how did you first get interested in law? Today's students are are so thoughtful about their planning, and they look so far ahead. And the the truth was, I was about a junior in college before I had any real thought of going to law school. I didn't. Both of my neither of my parents went to college, so I was a first generation college student. There were there were no family members in our you know extended family and family friends who were lawyers. So it wasn't it wasn't like an obvious path for me. But around junior year, my father asked me, what do you think about doing after you graduate? And I st- luckily at that point, I started talking to friends and some of my professors about their thoughts. And a number of people pointed me to, at the time, skills that I had that I just didn't really acknowledge. I was comfortable around people. I was comfortable speaking. I was academic. I really enjoyed drilling down on arguments. And you know, through those conversations, there were one or two professors and one or two friends really started to steer me towards law school. So it doesn't go way back, but I can tell you now, almost 30 years after that decision, it's provided so many opportunities for me, a legal career, and so many opportunities for my family. I've, I've really, I've never regretted it once. How did you kind of get familiar with the legal fields, right? So here you are, young and undergraduate student, and then you're faced with the LSAT applications and so many unknowns. What did you do to navigate that process and and kind of really get entrenched in the law as we we all have to at some point? Yeah, so I like I like I want to paint a picture of a real clueless undergrad. I thought I which is when I decided so many I wanted of to go, us. <laughs> yeah, when I decided to go to law school, that was I was done. I would just apply to law school. I didn't realize that you that there was an LSAT, believe it or not. And I took the <laughs> I, I took the last LSAT possible for the application process. So kind of kind of stumbled into that. And luckily the LSAT went went well enough for me in terms of applications. I had a thought that I wanted to be back in New York where my family was. The second thought that I had in terms of location was was going down to DC. I liked politics. I was interested in politics. I'd, I'd studied abroad in London my junior year and worked uh, for a member of parliament. And that really exposed me to a whole bunch of areas. But one was 
also oral argument in Parliament, which was really got me <laughs> more interested in yeah, <laughs> really got me interested in law firms. So when I was choosing law schools, I was really just focused on schools in those two cities. And I wound up going to George Washington down in, in Washington, D.C., right after I didn't take time off after undergrad, went straight there. And it's funny because when you think about law students, you think about graduating college, you think of, especially when you're younger, you think of people that have it together. And my first day on the George Washington campus, I'd never visited GW Law. Mm. I felt almost exactly the way I felt four years earlier when I stepped foot on Cornell's campus, went to Cornell University undergrad. Big <laughs> and I'd never visited Cornell before going there. They didn't visit any colleges in the college application process. And that feeling of being just incredibly lost was so much more pronounced in law school for me because mm -hmm. it, I had no, absolutely no point of reference it was a relatively new idea, a year and a half, two years old. And you just quickly realize that there's a lot of people around you that understand the process, understand how to succeed much more than you do. And yeah. that that dawned on me when I was an undergrad first year, my freshman year at Cornell, but that took a longer time. That kind of hits you right in the face that first week of law school. So much like my freshman year at Cornell, there was a lot of getting up to speed, a lot of questioning whether I did had made the right move, and a lot of self-doubt. Like a lot of self-doubt went with it. And on top of that, it's an expensive gamble. It is, and yeah. it's that's one thing that dawned yes. on me. I had student loans from undergrad, full student loans for law school. And that financial pressure really combined from a number of different perspectives to really, number one, make me question what I was doing, but then <laughs> immediately made me focus on what I was doing and making you know, the most of the opportunity that the law right. school would give me. I mean, it's interesting. It's like something that can be kind of have this negative light, like the financial burden is what in some ways kept you going because you had to make something of this massive investment in yourself, right? Had to. Yeah. yeah. That feeling has stayed with me. But in terms of, you know, we you, you, know, you talk about the what makes your ember blaze and what is it? It's at the same time that first year in law school, it was feeling like I needed to prove that I belonged, right? And that wow. I was like worthy of a spot in that law school. Right. And that I could succeed in this industry that I really didn't know anything about. It was like real determination to succeed, <laughs> to get a job, to pay off all these, things, right? Mm -hmm. And to really, to it was, so my scope of making an impact has changed over time. So it was, initially it was, you know, making an impact, positive impact for myself and my family. And as it's grown in time, it's trying to expand that impact in a positive way to the people around me, people that I could maybe be in a position to help through volunteering, through pro bono work, through other, other endeavors. But it's, I think that wanting to prove yourself and wanting to make a positive impact are two things that have kind of driven me from early on up until today and hopefully yeah. into the future. So Ed, if I can move you from that, just kind of, I think many of us, right, have gone into environments in which we don't know what's happening and we're kind of lost, right? A little bit of that is the first gen. 
But you went into law firms and yeah, I know you had to pay the loans off, right? And there are many people who go into law firms with the idea that I'll stay, pay my loans off, and then I'm going to go do something else. And some stay forever and some don't, right? But you stayed in, in private practice and you moved throughout. And so at some point, right, you kind of figured out the game. So talk us through kind of a little bit of how intentional you were with your career and how you figured out the game. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So I start. I'll do a quick run through where I worked. So out of, yeah. you know, out of in my second year summer, I didn't get a job with one of the big law firms. I got a job at a, a, a litigation boutique down in D.C., which was wonderful. It's called Jackson and Campbell. It's still there, and I wound up working for them after I graduated. And it was small, so it was incredibly mm-hmm. hands on, and right. I was incredibly lucky to have really two mentors there that really looked after me, really provided me with opportunities and gave me as much responsibility as I wanted to take on. And it was, it was incredibly valuable. So Uh, just if I can ask you, so ironically, it sounds like you probably did better going to a smaller firm than if you had gone into one of the large AMLOs. I mean, and I wanted to go into one of the large AMLA firms for a whole host of reasons. I wanted to be in New York. I wanted, you know, to make a lot of money. But this was this was my opportunity. And this and again, like I said, I would go there, learn as much as possible, get as get get as much experience as possible from day one. And that's that's exactly what I did. I was I was doing depositions. I was in court. I second chaired a trial that my my second year there. Which you would never do at a which you would never do. Yeah, which you would never have the opportunity to do that at a larger firm. And I was telling myself though at that point, all my friends were up in New York. I want to work for a national firm. I want to work for an international firm. I want more complex work. I want to get up to New York. So two years after working at, at this wonderful firm. I decided to start applying up to firms in New York. And I applied to the, I remember I updated my cover letters from the, from two years earlier to mm-hmm. the same exact firms and got a ton of interviews based on that experience. Based on the experience. Um, yeah. And I, I wound up getting a, I wound up going to Nixon Peabody. It was Nixon. Yeah. It was right after they merged. So it was Nixon Peabody. National firm, great experience. They also put me right into court with my, with that experience. And that's what I, oh. I kind of, I said, like, I, I've kind of proven how to succeed here. It is, it's say yes to a lot of work, take on the work and keep pushing your boundaries in terms of what you're comfortable with. And, you know, and, and I, at that point, I was pretty good at asking for help or raising my hand and saying, I don't understand this. So the but guy, there's also something else in what you're saying, right? Like you're not saying it, but one of the things that I'm hearing is we often hear about career development through changing law firms and taking on okay. different roles at different companies, whatever that may look like. But at the end of the day, you were maximizing the opportunity in, that you were in, right? Was it Whether it was your first job right at law school or your second job, there was you were trying to get everything that you possibly could. And I think that sometimes people are so focused on the next step that they forget that the current step is probably the best path is going to create the best path to that yeah. next step as opposed and to I, always looking outward. Great, yeah, yeah, I'm going to interrupt. Point. I'm going to interrupt for a second because I think that's really great advice. I literally just read on LinkedIn a partner who's now a partner who said that when he was younger, he got one really bad appraisal. 
And he initially thought that's not fair. It doesn't make sense. All the others are good. And then he said he sat down, he went through it. He decided, okay, I'm just going to deal with it. And he went through step by step and he worked on ensuring that those things weren't showing up ever again. And taking that initiative, right, maximizing that opportunity is what he said made his career. So that's what I hear from you, Ed, right? Yeah, and that's, and when I was, I think I understood the currency, right, at the time, like, why are you valued? You're valued for being indispensable, for being available, for doing good work, for billing hours, Mm -hmm. right? So I I think I understood what the currency was and what I was going to get measured by the people around me, the partners, the senior associates, but also the, but also the market. And I tried to, that skill set, the developing skill set, I really tried to develop. So at Nixon Peabody, I saw a good opportunity right around like the internet crash. I'd been a litigator up until then. One of the litigation clients that I worked for went into bankruptcy and they needed litigators to learn bankruptcy. Mm. So I, I raised my hand and I had a full docket of litigation cases and I had to learn bankruptcy on top of that. So I was really working. I remember that very clearly working around the clock at that point, but understood was in court, was in bankruptcy court a lot. So much so someone at another firm saw me in court, saw me arguing and said, as a lot of firms needed back then, we really need bankruptcy lawyers. We need bankruptcy litigators. Would you have any interest in coming to work for us? And that was a LaBeouf Lamb, Green McCrae. Okay. That, <laughs> yeah, so it was like another step. And so I went from a 60-person, very regional firm, up to a several hundred lawyer national firm in Nixon Peabody. And now I was going to one of the older school, New very York. White Shoe. Yeah, 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 White Shoe law firms in New York. International, lots of prestige. And I was super excited about that. And and that's... and. I was there for, I was there for six years. That's where like my career started to change a little bit. That as an associate, your skills building for so long and you're focused on skills and expanding and developing the skills. I wasn't really focused so much on the professional career path because I know there was a, there's a tipping point on when you just have to be like a great lawyer to even be considered for a counselor partner. And that's where I was really focused. When I was at LaBeouf, I still was certainly developing skills and slowly starting to build a network. But that's when I really started thinking about no longer being an associate and becoming a partner. What are those? What's the secret sauce? <laughs> of, I think it's it's when I was at when I was at you know when I was at Reed Smith and management positions. But I always used to say to associates, and I know we'll get to Reed Smith in a second. But like mm-hmm. the secret sauce is, I think to get as close to the role that you want, right? When you're not there yet. So see how the partners are thinking, see what they're talking about, see what their responsibilities are, see what they're rewarded for and start trying to do as much of that as possible, even when you're not there yet. And the the legal industry has changed, I think, dramatically in the last 20 years or 10 years. And I think that today's associates act a lot more like partners than certainly I did when I was an associate. They're they're concerned about things like profitability and, and write-offs and realization, where those concepts weren't really introduced to associates back then. Business development, bringing new, new work. Mm-hmm. But I, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I was, but I was very, yeah. 
I was de- yeah, I was definitely sure to like ask to be in front of clients, to pitch with clients, to travel with clients, and to make the f- partners feel comfortable with me as like an ambassador for them and for the firm. And I think that's like the biggest developmental area at LaBeouf. I was I was a lot more visible to clients, looking at the thing in a, in a very you know positive way. Yeah, just to get a point out, right? Like to you, you talk about business development and how things now have changed, right? And younger associates are getting kind of this this education on business development early on, right? And I think Maria, you said it could be a little bit of a detriment. I think there's some truth to it because mm-hmm. what you got in your early years, and I certainly got in my early years as well. Maybe Maria, you had the same experiences. You spend maybe years one, two, three becoming competent proving that you're competent and then gaining the trust of the people around mm-hmm. you, right? And so if you're constantly thinking about the dollar, you this key focus on their actual relationships and just being a very good attorney kind of gets lost. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the I day, agree. that's not what's going to, it's not going to be me calling Maria and being like, Maria, what's your latest case? Can I take it on? That's not right. going to get me the business. No. It's going to be, Maria's known me for 15 years, 10 years, and she's seen me. I trust me. her. Right. Yeah, she trusts I know me. you know your stuff. Yeah. I, right. She's heard me. She's heard yeah. me talk about it or think about it or write about it, whatever it may be. And that's why she's going to trust me with this, especially in litigation, right? This kind of, but the company kind of case, as opposed to somebody else. And it's just not going to come if you're constantly focused on business development and pitch decks from day one yeah. or year three. Yeah. No, I completely agree. While not every firm does that now, it's a trend in the legal industry where there's just so much more focus on on quarter to quarter performance. Right. As soon as law firms start doing that, then they're looking at revenue and expenses and they are, are people covering the expense side, which I think what is what leads to you need to produce. You need to produce. You need to yeah. produce yeah. new clients. You need to produce new matters. You need to generate back back then that it wasn't especially at a firm like LaBeouf, they were more, much more focused in training their associates in the culture and style that they practiced. They had institutional clients where the work the work came in. Question for another podcast, but where's the trend going? And I think the trend yeah. is probably mm-hmm. going much to everyone being business generators. Which yeah, I, which I, again, I, as makes you say. Sense. For, yeah, for all the reasons to say, I'm not sure that's a, a great trend for the industry. Yeah. Can I move you to Reed Smith? And so you're this Latino kid who felt uncomfortable in law school. You spent time trying to really kind of hone your craft, not really sort of marketing yourself. Now you're at Reed Smith. And not only do you, are you at Reed Smith, but you are part of management, right? You had the New York City office. You were the managing partner. And then you were part of the global management. So can you talk about what does that feel like, right? How did you get there? Yeah, you know what it feels like a lot of those and a lot of those in the before those different roles, especially early on when I was throwing my hat in to be considered for them. It's one of those things like jumping off of a cliff, right? right. You're on the cliff and you're like you're at that tipping point, and then you do it, and you're like, oh God, I guess we're doing this. So you're <laughs> you've jumped off the cliff and you're not but you come off like a cliff jumper. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. I, I appreciate from, it. From not, like the young age of, of 20 something. You're like, yeah, that sounds like a plan. That's not what I'm yeah, that's not what I'm doing. But yeah, it looks that way. So yeah, I move over to I move over to Reed Smith. 
and I'm a new I'm a new partner. I have to build up a book of business and and start doing that, start doing that pretty well. Like I, I, I built up a good network, Reed Smith, different law firm from very institutional clients, Reed Smith, very supportive of like entrepreneurial partners and supporting their partners to build up business. So I had a lot of support to do that, which was wonderful. And I think I was there for, I mean, it was my, I think it was my first year that the executive committee of the law firm, they decided to add a non-equity partner seat to their board, mm. to the executive committee mm-hmm. for the first time ever. And I'm a new, a new partner and decided to throw my hat in the ring. I'm like, why not? Why right. not? Why not me? And again, I had some support from a number of partners. And then as I, and when I did that, I mean, really threw myself into that very short little election cycle and was elected. And so a year into a new firm, year into being partner, I'm now sitting at you know at the executive committee board meetings of the firm with the big dogs with the yeah exactly <laughs> and bright enough to listen for a while to understand what's mm-hmm. going on and then I'd say smart enough to know where to comment and when what to say and when to speak up and I was fairly vocal but I got to know a lot of senior partners at the firm got to know a lot of the management at the firm and that and when I, there was a one-year role and I was coming out of that role. And that's when I was asked to take on different management positions. So really, I won't go through all of them like in, in depth, but right. the first one, I was co-leading our U.S. litigation group, which was great experience. I was asked to, after that, I was asked to be the office managing partner of the New York office, did that. Then I was asked to join our senior management team and I was the our global head of business strategy. Before that, I was back on the executive committee for a stint. And then I came out of that global business strategy role and took over our financial industry or global financial industry group, which I did about a four-year role. And that was the last role that I had at the firm. But all of those positions spanned spent 12 years. So it was 12 wow. years in management while maintaining a pretty significant book of business, a several million dollar book of business, and then at the same time trying to bill hours and billable hour work. Right. Yeah. And so I can get more into There's that. so much. There's so yeah. What I've pictured here though is my visual picture is you're some sort of mountaineer. All right. You've got some backpack with of skills and you're just climbing these mountains that very few people forget about whether you're diverse or not. Just very few people get the opportunity to be at such large law firms, global in nature and have these roles. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you're among a few thousand of pe- thousands of people that have done it. Yeah. If, if, if we can even say that. Right. Right. And there are things about you, right, that come out in the words that you're telling, that you're sharing with us. But tell us like the obstacles, like there, there must have been some really tough nights in all those roles. And it, it may not have been specific to the role. It could have been with your client, with just the business sheer amount of, yes. yeah, your business development, the sheer amount of like work and stress that goes along with those roles. Is there, I don't know, a day that w- that stands out in your mind more than others in, in all those roles? Well, the first day that comes to mind was I'd been traveling a hundred and some odd days for the year. And I was in Frankfurt, I think, or I was on the train between Frankfurt and Munich on my birthday, trying to FaceTime my family. And that was towards the end of like my career. And that was like a point of reflection. Okay. How many, how many birthdays am I going to miss? 
I'm here. Where is this headed? So that's one bookend on it. So going back to LaBeouf before I'm even at Reed Smith, I love the legal industry. I think it's very interesting to me. It's what I'm doing now with my career. Law firms take a ton from you. And law firms will take, it's a profession that will take whatever you give it. And it can take everything from you. It really can. The one point that I didn't mention, most important point is, so when when, when I moved up to work for Nixon Peabody, I moved with my then girlfriend, not even engaged, now wife, up to New York, who's all, my wife, Carmita, she's uh, also a lawyer, so understands the industry. But when you, I talk about all of the backdrop of all the work I'm talking about, all the roles I'm talking about, is that there's a finite amount of time in each day, and you have family, you have loved ones, you have friends you want to spend time on. And it was, I'd say from LaBeouf on, it was a constant struggle with time and a constant daily feeling of not giving different aspects of my life the time it you know that they really needed and there was yeah. and there's a point where you're like you realize point where i realized the sacrifice you know the sac- personal sacrifices that you're making to succeed and the dedication to succeed and there were a lot of drivers early on and i like i don't even want to joke about it but Financial was a huge one, right? Mm-hmm. It was, we had loans. We both had student loans to pay off. We both supported our our families. That there's a- And you had a, children. Yeah, we had children, right? There's a big feeling- <laughs> They're a little expensive. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Everything's expensive, right? Getting more and more expensive. So there's a feeling of, there's a feeling of that responsibility. So when you're working, you can tie that sacrifice directly to that. Yeah. And that's- mm-hmm. That adds to the, that certainly adds to the pressure and every and everything else, but it's you say the mountain climbing, which is which is a I mean that's an I can visualize that well. What it felt a lot more like was kind of like this really steep treadmill that was moving faster <laughs> and faster. So, yeah, that right. you, but that you couldn't get off, and that's the one thing I thought about. My dad always said, always keep creating opportunity for yourself. And that doesn't mean jump from one thing to another or keep moving, but have the conversations, build the networks. He was like such a smart, he really was such a smart guy and like some of the things that he taught me, but I didn't want statistically from what I should have accomplished to where, what I was able to accomplish, Mm -hmm. it was, it was hard to do. And the odds were certainly against me. So stepping off of that treadmill at any point along the way, felt incredibly selfish, right, to me, because mm-hmm. I had a lot of responsibilities. Not a, pe- a lot of people had accomplished this. There were so many Latino lawyers, Hispanic lawyers that that talked to me about my visibility and what it meant to them. Right. So there was a, I mean, there were so many different reasons for me to stay in those roles. And I, yeah. I don't want to say that it was painful because I enjoyed the work and I really enjoyed the people that but I was- there was a price. Um, but yeah, there but there's a price. price and there's a lot yeah. of other external pressures yeah. kind of fueling you forward. So, so I just want to, because we've covered so much. <laughs> I mean, your career is just fascinating. And I know we, this was going to happen because we had the prep call, right? And so for those of you who are listening, you have to come to part two to understand what Ed is doing today, which is fascinating, right? It's another jump. 
it could be a cliff dive or it could be a mountaineer kind of situation. We'll share that with you in podcast number two, but it's another pivot, right? It's another pivot where you stepped off the treadmill and perhaps you're on another treadmill or you're on an elliptical now because the knees need a little bit more help. I don't know. But (laughs) if, you know, as we get a little bit older, but the one that before we end, I like to kind of give people, if you can, like a minute or two, just two takeaways. What, What are two things you want people to leave with from your experience and the things that you've shared that could help them move forward? Yeah, I think it's, I would say, take smart, informed risks, right? Mm-hmm. Don't take every risk out there. But if you're thinking about a leap, whether it's a career step, something personal, think it through, talk to those people around you, really look into it and understand like everything about that next step. Play that out, but don't be afraid of the risk part. And it depends, yeah. different parts of your life, you can have different levels of risk. For me, I think going to law school is a risk because there's a lot of student loans involved. Just to tease the next segment, I've stepped away from that big law from all of those big management roles, Mm -hmm. and now I'm starting a new business. And it's very entrepreneurial, and it's a risk I never thought I would take. But I think it's a smart, informed risk, and that's something that we can talk more about. That's such a a lawyerly piece of advice. I mean... Yeah, I know it's, it's, and it's, it's contradictory free. a little bit, it's right? Free. Right, 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 right. No, I mean, yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's something I often did when I was a lawyer or even a compliance leader is to say, look, you can take risks. I'm not telling you not to take risks, but you should understand what it means, right? You should kind of think through what could happen, what might happen, and how maybe could I prevent it? Then go jump off the cliff. I don't, (laughs) as long as you're not violating a law, you can go jump. But I think it's important for people to really think about the pros and the cons, right? Which is something I often tell my children is go do pros and cons and then come back to me. So, and here's the thing. There's so many, as I've stepped away, I've received no exaggeration, 10 to 20 calls from people more senior than me that say, I'm not happy in my position. I wish I could do what you did. Right. Right. And we have long conversations about why not can you and just starting pulling back a lot of the assumptions and a lot of the barriers to making that change. Great. I think you can control your happiness by taking, as you say, smart, informed risks. You are setting out your own path to being a happy lawyer if you want to be. Yeah. And you deserve that. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you, Ed. Really appreciate your time. And for our listeners, come back to podcast part two with Ed. Thank you. This is great. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Blazing Ember podcast and our journey to empowerment. Look out for more episodes to keep your ember blazing. Visit blazingember.com where you can connect with us and share your feedback. Hasta pronto.